welcome to today's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's episode of Attendance Bias features Adam Jerugam of Northern California. Together, we are going to break down April 18th, 1992's Harry Hood. When Adam first messaged me, he originally wanted to discuss this whole week of shows on the West Coast from the spring of 1992. Considering that I try to get these episodes down to about a commute, I'd say 40 minutes to an hour each, it seemed a little excessive to try to stuff four or five shows into one episode of Attendance Bias. Working together, we whittled it down to this one track from the band show at Stanford University that spring. When Adam messaged me, however, and he brought up the idea of spring of 1992, I knew that I was immediately intrigued. One of my first tapes ever was from July 15th, 1992 at Tracks in Charlottesville, Virginia. Of course, that's a few months after today's track, but I knew that there's something about 1992 that's extremely special about Fish and their development as a band, especially as improvisers. So I was thrilled that as we continued to speak, Adam and I really got into the nitty gritty of what makes Fish special from 1992. In this case, the spring, their first jaunt to the West Coast, or at least the first jaunt to Southern California, where they really started to build up a fan base. And you'll be able to hear why when we break down this Harry Hood. So enough from me. Let's join Adam Jerugam to talk about Harry Hood from April 18th, 1992 at Wilbur Field at Stanford University. Adam, thank you for joining me today on Attendance Bias. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Sure. This is one of the earliest tracks that anyone so far has selected for Attendance Bias. But this early development of the band's period, you know, early 1.0, is always captivating to me. So I'm really excited to talk to you about Harry Hood from April 18th, 1992 at Stanford University in Palo Alto. I also think you have the distinction of being the first person on a mini episode to pick Harry Hood. So congratulations. Thank you. You know, this has been my favorite since the day. This is my first version I ever saw. It's been my favorite ever since. So I'm glad to talk about it. I can't wait to hear more about how you got into Vish. So let's start with the attendance bias lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. So Adam, how did you first discover Fish? in a nutshell? Uh, I had a very good friend um, in college who started getting tapes and we started listening to him. And this was around fall of 1991. And I was actually ready to go and see the band for the first time at the Great American Music Hall in October of 1991, but missed my ride. Oh. So I had to wait till the next spring to see my first show. And those shows, I think they're famously Fish was the first band ever to sell out the Great American Music Hall being unsigned. They were the first unsigned band to sell out the Great American. I think they played two shows. They right? did. back. They played two nights and we were supposed to go the second night. My friends left without me. Oh, lame. Well, it's okay. I, I was running late. It wasn't like they just ditched me, but it was, you know, one of those things where if I'd been there half an hour earlier, my first show would have been six months earlier. And where were you in college? At, at UCSC in Santa Cruz. So what ended up being your first fish show? So my first fish show was actually the first time that fish played in Los Angeles on April 15th, 1992. Um, it was actually a sold out show in LA, about a thousand people in a theater. Uh, we actually got in trouble for both dancing and smoking in the venue. So it was really an interesting experience. How do you get in uh, trouble for dancing at a venue? I, you, did you know, you they wanted everyone loose? seated. Yeah. The ushers wanted people seated. It was very, very bizarre. It actually, 
it took, you know, that show wasn't very good. They had, they must have had a curfew because it was only two hours long. The really good stuff started the next night. And that's the night I got it at the Anaconda in Santa Barbara. Oh, that is a legendary show. We'll have to sneak in some conversation about that. That was the first show, not the first show I had on soundboard, but it was the first tape that I had where I realized how big a difference a soundboard made from early fish. I remember Mike, especially during possum. This is my favorite possum ever from that Anaconda show that is just right in my ears. So I can't wait to dig into that one. Uh, What was the most recent fish show that you've seen? The last one I saw was the rescue squad show, the new year's show at MSG, you know, where we're standing right under him when uh, his platform broke. We're Mm -hmm. actually frightened for Trey because we could see he was completely scared but yeah, that was my last show. So, and actually the very interesting thing is that that was my 151st fish show. And since Jerry died, I've also been at 151 Grateful Dead shows. So for the last two years, I've been stuck <laughs> and not by design at 151 shows each. So um, my next show, which is supposed to be the first night of Dick's, will I'll finally, after 25 years, see more fish shows and Grateful Dead shows. They will take the lead. Yeah. Until maybe until fall tour uh, this episode, I'm guessing will air around the beginning of the fall, maybe late, late summer in September. Do you have any plans to see them at the Chase Center? So under normal circumstances, I would go to most of the West Coast shows. Um, I'm actually going to be assuming I can get there. I'm going to be traveling and out of the country and returning, flying into San Francisco during the show the second night. I just, I can't see it. There's no way that I'm coming in from out of the country after 25 hours on a plane and going there. Yeah. If you could time travel back to any fish show that you've attended already, aside from the one we're talking about, this one doesn't count. Which one would it be and why? So for me, it was the next night in Santa Cruz. So uh, it's the catalyst show in Santa Cruz on April 19th, 1992 of the five shows that I saw or the four of the legendary shows that I saw, it was probably the, the least greatest one. Um, but for me, it was one of the only, it was one of the two times I was able to walk from my house to the venue where the venue was less than a mile from my house. They were playing Miles Davis beforehand. We got a spot on the front of the balcony, which is, it's basically a walkway overlooking the stage and the band, the backstage at the time was in the back of the venue. So the band had to walk by us each time going on and off the stage. It was such a small venue and it was completely sold out, but there was probably only 800 people there. To this day, it was one of the most uh, incredible live music experiences I've ever had. It sounds very personal. Yeah. If you had to select one or two tracks or highlights from that night for people at home to listen to, if they haven't heard the show yet, which ones do you remember best that you would suggest so it's interesting it's kind of a tale of two bands the thing that really makes that in- that period interesting is you can tell they play all the time and they rehearse all the time and everything is perfect you can hear on the soundboards the vocal cues of them like talking to each other while they're playing saying okay we're i'm counting this off we're about to do this crazy transition um the stash the reba the maze the maze to this day because of that version Maze is my favorite song. Well, that and Sleeping Monkey, but they're two different songs. <laughs> Both you and Paige. Yeah, it's Sleeping Monkey for me. And that show, that Santa Cruz show has the Sleeping Monkey stamp of approval. For me, only the special nights get Sleeping Monkey. Yeah. And what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen out of Fish Show? 
Um, wow. I've seen a lot of really weird stuff. This is um, my favorite question of the lightning yeah. round because you always get the best answers. Well, so my wife got pulled onto the stage during Meat Stick at Blossom in 2012. And that was kind of crazy. So she was on stage with a bunch of other people dancing Meat Stick. I flew home and she went to Alpine and she got pulled onto stage again at Alpine for Meat Stick. Was she... Was she in the front row? I've never seen anyone get pulled on stage. The they only were in time, the pit. Yeah. Yeah. Because the only time I remember, I saw Fish in 1999 at the Nassau Coliseum. And that was when the meat stick was kind of new. They, they played it on the summer tour. This was in the fall. And Sophie Diloff, who was Paige's wife at the time, came on to teach the meat stick dance to everyone. But I've never seen a fan get pulled on. Was that a normal thing? No, not at all. It was totally... I, it was so bizarre. I, I yeah, I, again, it wouldn't happen all the time. You know, and it was funny because I was torn between that story and the fact that they had a bathtub on stage in San Francisco and everyone in the crew got in and out of the bathtub for brother. <laughs> was it, When was that? That's the night before the Stanford show that we're going to talk about. Oh. This week has all sorts of antics. They had a kid with ukulele at the shows. I mean, squirt gun breaks all the way through the Stanford show where they actually <laughs> had a squirt gun and they were squirting the crowd. I mean, it was... Um, at different times, for sure. Well, let's get into it. Let's talk about the context in which this show was played. When was this show played? So today's show was played in the spring of 1992, and they toured from March 6th to May 18th, consisting of 54 shows. And that's just the spring tour. That's more shows than they allow themselves to play in a calendar year these days. The tour took them literally all over the country. They started in New Hampshire and New England in general. They went to the Mid-Atlantic, then to the Midwest, the Southwest, up the coast to Oregon and Eureka, California. Uh, Not quite your area, but close enough, I guess, when it comes to fish. Uh, They went back across the Midwest and finished up in Western New York and Burlington. So when I looked at this, it struck me that this is one of those tours where fish was proving that they were in the game. Like they were here to make a name for themselves and to prove that they were willing to put in the work rather than try and get a hit single or get something on the radio and have everything come to them. They were in in the trenches during this. So where were you in the spring of 1992 that you crossed paths with fish? It's interesting. So I was already in Southern California for all things Passover. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and I actually bailed on Passover to go to fish. Which wasn't didn't go over too well. With my I'm family, sure it but didn't. That's something I've been else. there. Yeah. Um, but so I was down there. They started their tour in LA, and we figured that we would just follow it up. So we saw the show in LA. Um, the next afternoon, we were in Santa Barbara for the Anaconda show, and I actually spent an hour that afternoon with Trey and Dave Schools and Marley, just hanging out outside the venue. So you have to understand, at this time, Fish wasn't big on the West Coast at all. Only a couple hundred people went to this Anaconda show. The band was just hanging out. They were really what you were just saying. They were out to sell themselves, to prove themselves, right? They were still trying to get fans, trying to get people on the bus. Something they don't, I don't think that they need to do right now. Obviously their fan base is so large, but at the time, and the fan base was a lot bigger back East, but it's interesting because these shows are so small. These crowds were a thousand or less every venue. So again, if you're listening to the soundboards, you can hear them talking on stage. You can hear the vocal cues. You listen to that Binghamton show, which is a month before, and you can hear the crowd roaring for Wilson. And I was like, oh, my God, this is where Fish is going, 
right? But they hadn't gotten there yet on the West Coast. They were still trying to prove themselves. It's funny to talk about this and to hear about this. I was just speaking with a guest the other day about a show that she picked from 1990. And she picked a show from a New York City venue that's no longer there called The Marquee. And that was about a thousand person capacity. And in 1990, they had outgrown The Wetlands, which was a 500 person capacity. And so this was her show that she picked was a full two years earlier than this one that they're kind of starting over in a sense in the West coast compared to building already what they had established back East. Yeah. I mean, the Warfield holds 2000 people and it was half full for their show. Right. I don't think they played you. You'll be the one to correct me. Probably. I don't know if they played the Warfield before 1994. No, they played the first time in 1992. And then again, in 1993. Oh no, not in 1990 but I think uh, definitely in 1994, I did, Maybe I saw the macaroni. Out. So that's the other thing. One other weird thing is having that opera singer come out in the middle of, <laughs> uh, of the show of the Mac and cheese show at the Warfield. That was a pretty, and having them hand out Mac and cheese to everybody to right. shake along with the show. That was a pretty special night too. And set list wise, a picture of Nectar was released right before the band started this spring 92 tour. And the tour would feel would feature most of the songs that would eventually appear in Rift event, you know, eventually within a year or so, uh, 1993. So mm-hmm. you originally wanted it when your first email, you wanted to talk about this whole slew of shows. And I do my best to keep these episodes to about an hour. So I thought this would require an entire series. What is it about this week in California that grabbed you so intensely that you felt you could talk about it forever? Well, it's that first show, the 15th, isn't really anything to write home about. The first show that they ever played in Los Angeles. It starts at the Anaconda show, which for a lot of people was their first tape they ever heard. And to be honest, if you listen to it, it's Trey explaining everything to everybody. Right? It's Trey saying, this is what we do. This is Game Henge. I'm in Southern California. So, thank you. Very exciting. But uh, right now, what we want to do is, if we can bring it way down, we're going to take you on a little journey back to where we come from, which is a long way away from here. And um, we're happy to be here, and we're happy to be out here by the beautiful ocean and everything. But where we come from is far away from the ocean. So if you watch right now, Come with me while we just kind of open the roof up on top of this building and let some of the air flow in here. And just imagine we're lifting up off the ground and up into the sky. And as you go up in the air, you can look down, you can see, you can see the lining of the shore go away and the little oil pumps out there in the middle of the, uh, and all that. And uh, it's kind of lifting up and you can get up and now up there in the clouds a little bit. And we're gonna take you with us now back to where we come from, because we're troubadours from a different place than we're at here. So we're coming with us now, and the clouds are lifting apart. And we, as we go off, you can start to see sort of the continental divide over there and the whole Colorado and everything, the Midwest, Canada. This is, you know, and, and I didn't know what it was, right? Yeah. I was a brand new fan. Like, that was the night that it clicked for me. And I'd hung out with Trey. The next day, we get to San Francisco, and Mike is hanging out in front of the venue. And I was like, Mike, what do you think of the show last night? He said it was the best show we've played so far. He probably says you know? that all the time. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it, there was a feeling like something really special was going on. And it really starts at that Santa Barbara show and ends at that Eureka show, which unfortunately I wasn't at. But luckily, I got to see four out of five. But these are like some of the re- most important formative shows for them in their journey from 
a band that's playing songs to a band that that is able to take their songs and do things with them because at this point they're it's all rehearsed it's all they're playing a lot you can hear they're playing a lot you can hear they're rehearsing a lot it is all precision there's a few parts where they stretch things out but everything is pretty predictable but also no floods you know yeah. it's all perfect the tones are perfect page sounds perfect tray sounds perfect it's really it's really something special. And if you don't mind Mike playing slap bass, it's all over it. <laughs> well, I think uh, speaking of Mike, I remember him. I think it was in the fish book, which was compiled by Richard Gare. Mike, I think there's a quote from him that said, we played two types of gigs back in like the late eighties and early nineties, either there were sloppy gigs with incredible jams or there were tight gigs with no jams at all. And that kind of describes what you were just saying. Today's Harry hood is I think 13 minutes long. It might be the longest track of the set, maybe of the show. It was played toward the end of set two, which contained 19 songs. You know, you look in this tour that just started summer 2021, most of the second sets are about six songs a piece. Yeah. It's totally different way of playing for them. According to fish.com, it says that this was an all ages free daytime show. I don't know what this means. Maybe you could shed some light on fish.com. It calls it and per, forgive my pronunciation, a Rinkendelt party that there were no tickets, no fences or any notable security. Exactly. That was exactly what it was. It was the band set up on a soccer field and anyone who wanted to come could just come and be there. And there were a couple hundred people. Was it sponsored by the, the? It was sponsored by one of the on-campus groups, right. and I think originally, yeah, like a, 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 maybe a frat or something. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I, we did all we knew is that there was a free show. I saw one free fish show and one free Grateful Dead show out of those 151 shows. <laughs> but that's more than I've seen. Yeah, I've never seen a free fish show. Knock on wood. It's funny that you mentioned Nectar because we'd really been listening to that a lot before these shows. So any song that they played off the Nectar was like. At that time, it was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. You know, to open a second set with Glide, I mean, come on. It's my favorite song. I, I know. I mean, it's like, what's, is there a more perfect way to open second set? <laughs> and if it was no, a daytime probably. show, do you remember yeah. roughly, I know it was many years ago, but do you remember roughly when this was played? Because we're so used to shows starting Eastern time, at least at 8.15. Yeah, this was, you know, early afternoon. It was over while the sun was still out. This is that's so fun. It's like being on the West Coast for the Super Bowl. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, and there was one other thing. So widespread panic was opening for fish the first three shows. So I saw them play one set in L.A. and then fish two sets, one set in Santa Barbara and fish two sets, one set in San Francisco and fish two sets. That night, widespread panic was headlining their own show at the Catalyst. Oh, wow. Well, they yeah. used to do that a lot, right? They used to trade off slots. Yeah. And so, in the South, mostly fish would open for widespread and. Vice versa, widespread, but open for fish north of the Mason-Dixon. Yeah. So um, that night, I think that part of the rationale for having that daytime show was to let people go to the widespread show at night, which I didn't go to. We were resting up for the Santa Cruz show the next night. I mean, of course, Priorities. five shows, five nights in a row. Yeah. <laughs> so the last question I have from this segment is we're going to talk about Harry Hood from the show. What about Harry Hood stood out to you? There are a couple things about this hood in particular. One is the is the peanuts theme, which everyone loves, right? Yeah, I love it. And I mean, you gotta love it. You can't not love it. And it's funny how kind of Trey falls into it. Um, and then there's you know an 80 second bliss peak at the end, which is just like 
you know, how else do you want a show to end after whatever, 19 songs, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's a really great way to send everybody home. Though they did play, you know, Big Black Furry Creatures from Mars and Contact as an encore. So they were still in goofy mode, but this was the end of like, this is like the finale fireworks for the show, right? Yeah. So for the first minute or so, Hood is instantly recognizable. You know, if you took a fan who got into Fish yesterday, knows a bunch of songs, spun them in a circle and played this for them, it's still Harry Hood. We still know it. Like the reggae feel is there. It's very crisp. Uh, Mike kind of leads the way a little more than Trey would in future years. And they have what I thought was a pretty mature sound for 1992. Because when I listened to early shows in the early 90s, at least, the thing that stands out to me most is Paige's keyboards. Because he didn't have the piano yet. And it's very obvious compared to what our ears are now used to. But it's still there. It's still Harry Hood. And it's kind of like Fisher Price Harry Hood. Uh, in a way. I mean, I really like his Hammond work. It's not instant. It, I think he gets to it two minutes in, maybe three minutes in. But it's really, really good and really tasteful. And it it's funny how they kind of like, it, it takes them a few minutes. And we're going to get there in a minute. But it's mm-hmm. it's interesting how how they kind of, it spaces out a little bit a few minutes into it. They're yeah. kind of thinking like, maybe we could take this somewhere, but they didn't at that time take anything anywhere. So <laughs> it's like, right. the, you know, you could tell it, that that it, there was a little uh, seed planted there. Right. There are hints. You're right. That they don't quite push it out there for most of, you could cut out maybe two minutes of this and it would just be Harry Hood, like a studio track. Right? There wasn't much, but there are, like you said, seeds. There are sprinkles yeah. on top of, of improvisation. You mentioned somewhere around two to three minutes in. I wrote notes down on that too, that you could already hear some experimentation where Paige is, you mentioned is Hammond, that, that stood out to me also, while also twinkling the piano. I'm such a huge fan of that. And then my favorite part of this whole thing before the peak, well, I say my favorite, there's also the peanuts part. So everything is my favorite part. But my first, my first favorite part is when Trey extends his feedback for a really long time.
start to kind of that's one of those seeds where it seems like they're about to just drop out of the traditional structure of the song but then they bring it back together you know it's there Uh, it's it's there it was really it's it's really you he is you can tell that he's kind of one with his tone at that point where it's not as complicated as as it is today he knows exactly the sounds that he's going to get out of it and and he's going for it yeah on a recent rehearsed (laughs) <laughs> yes, it is very rehearsed. This hood, I agree with you that it is very well rehearsed, obviously, but they are willing to play a little bit. I think you used the word playful earlier. Yeah, they open it up a little bit. You can tell that, you know, in a few years later, by 1994, 1995, they would take it, you know, 20 minutes. There's yeah. a few spaces, there are a few doors where now they would just walk right through them. And there they opened them up, but they didn't actually walk through. Also noticeable is Fishman's snare drum. Did that when you listen to it recently, I see you shaking your head. What What are you thinking before I say anything? It's so funny because back then he was such an incredible jazz influenced drummer in my mind and so technical, so incredible. And I felt that he kind of lost some of that over the years. And mainly that's due to age and slowing down. Right. But he's still an incredible drummer. He just can't, you know, it's like listening to that llama. They can't do that anymore. You know, <laughs> It's so, also it's also the venues that they're playing. You know, yes. you're playing venues that are somewhere between 700 and maybe 1200. A jazz influence is probably more appropriate than when you're playing Madison Square Garden. Absolutely. Right. And there are subtleties to his playing during this period. You can also hear it in early 1993 that are just amazing. It, it's it's worth listening to just Fishman and listening to what he does and the care that he puts into it and the and the flourishes that he does, he's not a straight ahead drummer. It's really, yeah. it's really something. And he never has been. Even if you go no. back to their recordings from 1984, you know, their first known recordings, it's like this guy, there's something different about that drummer. He's very noticeable. And Trey obviously noticed it right yeah. away before anyone else. About seven minutes is where the jam begins, the traditional hood jam. And this is where they begin playing fairly sparse, where they're, uh, their compartmentalization of Harry Hood as we know it starts to form where they all kind of drop out and Mike keeps the three chord progression going, but it's up to the rest of the band to do something with it. I told you earlier when I, I listened to this Harry Hood, like all day, all day, we're recording right now in my time zone. It's about 2.30 PM. I was up at 9 AM and I've been listening to it basically on a track. So maybe this is where I was like, you could sense the build already, if not a peak itself, like you start sensing the build. And I thought that 1992, that they were expanding their repertoire to a huge degree between a picture of Nectar and Rift. Like those are any fish fans, favorite songs that, you know, off the top of their heads, they were not only expanding themselves, not in terms of songwriting, but also communicating as an improvisation group. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, where they really, they're actually, you can hear them communicating with each other and actually building something new out of it.
that's something new at about nine and a half minutes is when we hear the beginnings of the famous Linus and Lucy jam, the theme from Peanuts. And my first thought, I used your word a lot without knowing that you were going to say it today. I wrote that Fish was very playful at this time. Like now we take it for granted. Why do you go to so many shows? Well, anything could happen on any night. But back then, I don't know what this means, but I thought it was really true back then. I think some some conventions have developed, you know, between then and now. But back then, it was really anything was up for grabs. At, at any time, they could do anything anytime. And they still, in theory, can, but in, but things have very have formalized more than they were then. I mean, then anything could happen. It was really, it was really a loose scene, right? I mean, with only a couple hundred people at every show, up to a thousand. it was actually shocking when they first played the Greek the next summer where I was like, okay, great. Now there are 7,000 person band on the West Coast. <laughs> and then again in 2010. Yeah. Uh, were you at those shows? Yeah, I was. Okay. So was I. Uh, all I'll say is that uh, it was scary how crowded it was. What do you mean? Because to me, it seemed very sedate. I mean, I'm used to East Coast shows. Also. Sure. The, the shows were good. They weren't bad yeah. shows. The problem was it was overcrowded and kind of dangerous. Dangerous? Really? Yeah, you couldn't, if, if there was a problem, nobody would have been able to get out of there. My memories of it is you had to line up super early, of course, because it's all GA at the Greek. And if you didn't line up early enough, you couldn't find a seat or a space on the floor once you got in. So I hear what, now that I'm talking through it, I thought it was pretty laid back. I really enjoyed it because I'm comparing it to my experience at like the man in Philadelphia. Totally different, right? And yeah. East Coast, it's always been different energy between the two. West Coast is always more laid back. Well, I say that, but occasionally you get a crazy show. Right. And to wrap up this part of the Linus and Lucy jam, they didn't have the patience that they have now back in 1992, but they had the dexterity and they had the sharpness that anything, like we talked about, anything could happen anytime. And this Linus and Lucy jam, I mean, I can't imagine anyone not liking it. Unless you hate peanuts, but yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it brought smiles on everybody's faces. Imagine just dancing on a lawn barefoot, you know, in the sun to this. It was really, it was hot. It was good. Yeah. And it, it's, really it's good. so charming. And yeah. then around 12 minutes to wrap it all up, this is when they turn the corner and take it home. You know, this is the Harry Hood that we all know and hope for, cross our fingers for when we see them tomorrow or last night. Yeah, absolutely. It's basically 80 seconds of bliss, explosion peak you know put a smile on your face and then the lyrics come back in it's just amazing and it's you know it does that to me every time and i've been listening to it for almost 30 years (laughs) 
So what do you remember after the show is over, after the encore? Since it was in a big open soccer field, did everyone just disperse? People hung out for a while. I mean, this is... <laughs> Trey's dog was running through the crowd the entire oh, show. Marley. Yeah. So, I mean, Trey's dog was out there. People's kids were there. Um, people went home because, as I said, widespread panic was happening the next night. I think the band wanted a little break, too, in yeah. a way, because they were playing night after night after night after night. I mean, we hung out a little bit and then we all we all dispersed and we got ready for the next show. I mean, for us, it was important because the next show was in our hometown. Adam, before we wrap it all up, any last thoughts, anything we didn't get to, whether it's about Harry Hood or this whole stretch in general or just this show from April 18th, 92? It's really interesting to listen to this carefully, the show and hear because it's such a small show in such a venue with such good acoustics to actually hear them talking to each other on stage in a way that it's just impossible now in a venue like MSG, you're not going to hear them. You know, you can hear them count stuff off, but I'm talking about mid song having vocal cues to get the other guys back in at the precise time. You can always call trade general consensus, but um, <laughs> he, you can tell, and I know I've said this many, many times that they were playing a lot and practicing a lot because everything is on. And, and they were out to sell themselves. They wanted to win over the West Coast. And for you anyone know, at like, home listening, this show is on fish.in, fishing as a soundboard. So if you want to hear them talking and what Adam was talking about, uh, it's very easily accessible and it's crisp and clear. It's a great recording. Yeah, there are soundboards of all these shows except for the Catalyst show. So Kevin, if you're listening, <laughs> you owe me a soundboard of this channel of the Catalyst show from Santa Cruz. Let's put that out as an official release. I will DM this directly to him, to Kevin Shapiro. I, I've sent him the he has all my pictures from that Anaconda show. So if you want to see a picture of Anaconda, if you have the latest um uh, fish companion if you open it up the very first picture when you open it up is my picture from the anaconda of, of trey and the rest of the band on stage. we're in the presence of a celebrity photographer i i guess i was just taking <laughs> photography at the time <laughs> so adam jerugam uh harry hood from april 18th 1992 at stanford thank you so much for coming on attendance bias for bringing everyone's attention to this harry hood it, it added a new favorite to my playlist and just this whole era of fish spring 1992 is kind of underrepresented or underrated maybe as a whole. So anyone at home who's listening, highly recommend diving into that. And thank you so much for sharing, not just the breakdown and your musical expertise of this Harry hood, but also just your memories of what it was like to be in a certain time and place that has gone by. Yeah. Maybe next time we'll talk about the crest show at in Sacramento. Oh, the game ends. Yeah. Fun. All right. Well, Adam, thanks again so much. All right. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And that's it for my interview with Adam Jerugam of Northern California about Harry Hood from April 18th, 1992 at Stanford University. I'd like to give Adam a big thanks for not only reaching out to appear on Attendance Bias, but also for working with me with such patience and understanding to whittle our conversation down to this single track out of a whole week of big highlights and interesting stories. I'd also like to thank Fish.in, Fishin', for providing the amazing soundboard track that we used in today's episode. I'd like to thank Fish.net and Fish.com for some background information about today's show. And of course, I have to thank you, the listener, for joining me each week on Attendance Bias. 
And if you enjoy Attendance Bias, please subscribe to the show on whichever podcast app you enjoy, and please leave a rating and a review as well. You can also look out for Attendance Bias on social media, specifically on Twitter and Instagram. Reach out and say hello, and I will send you a free sticker. Thanks again for listening to Attendance Bias, and I'll see you next week.